Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, COVID vaccination should ramp up as Canada readies to receive 2 million doses a week on a day when an Ontario teen becomes one of the youngest COVID victims in Canada. And Ontario makes a request for help from the military. Opposition MPs push for more committee hearings on the Vance allegations as the circle of government insiders who were told of the allegations widens. And the federal budget, as expected, is passed by the Commons. Snap election averted. Our panel of parliamentary journalists weighs in on that and the ongoing COVID response. And that's where we'll begin with the latest developments on COVID-19 in Canada. We have been hearing how the third wave of COVID, it's been especially hard on younger Canadians. And sadly, another one of those young people has lost her fight against the disease. 13-year-old Emily Victoria Viegas died last Thursday in Brampton, Ontario. Her death announced today. Members of Parliament observed a moment of silence in her memory. With high case numbers and hospitalizations, Ontario is getting help. A small contingent of healthcare specialists from Newfoundland and Labrador will arrive in Toronto on Tuesday. And the federal government has approved a request from Ontario to deploy military medical personnel to help overwhelmed hospital staff. We have requested some assistance from the federal government uh, to help us with a request to the other provinces and territories and also to see if they're able to send us any further supports in terms of personnel from either the Canadian Armed Forces or the, uh, the Red Cross. Um, as you know, we are seeing increasing numbers of people in our intensive care units. And as we are building more beds, we have created more spaces. Uh, we have been, uh, we have set back and delayed some of the emergency surgeries and procedures, but we are still in need of some more um, health human resources, although we've extended them considerably. Dr. Isaac Bogotch is an infectious disease specialist and a member of Ontario's COVID-19 task force. He joins me again today. Uh, Dr. Bogotch, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time, as always. Let's begin with the heartbreaking death of uh, this 13-year-old girl in Brampton, Emily Viegas, one of the youngest COVID-19 deaths now in the country, one of uh, the eight Canadians under the age of 19 to have succumbed to this virus, and quickly, it seems. Younger Canadians are, are and now dying at home before they even make it uh, to the hospital. What, why is that happening? Well, first of all, this is just an awful case. It's, it's tragic, and uh, you know, I've read a few different articles sort of outlining the events, and it's just... It's just Horrific. There's no other way to put it. Um, you know, certainly we know that the variants of concern can cause more significant illness. We know they spread more quickly. Uh, that's probably driving some of it. I think it's also fair to say that as awful as this case is and as awful as all the deaths are, you know, the, the risk factors for death are still on the older end of the spectrum. They, are, they still are, even with the variants of concern. Yes, we are seeing younger and younger people land in hospital. But if we look at the risk factors for hospitalization and death, we still see, you know, by far more older and people on the older end of the spectrum who are who are significantly impacted. Doesn't mean bad things can happen to young people. They certainly do, and this is a tragic example of it. But when we're looking at death uh, and other negative impacts, 
it's it's overwhelmingly in people over the age of 40. You are part of Ontario's vaccine task force. So there are growing calls now to refocus the vaccinations on essential workers and those hotspot neighborhoods where most of the infection and spread is happening. Uh, so far, only about 25 percent of the vaccines going to those places. And but there is talk, talk of expanding and uh, ramping up those doses to those communities. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, when we were putting together the uh, vaccine rollout plans, the stage one, stage two, and stage three rollout plans for the province. This is explicitly outlined in the the second phase, which we're in right now. I mean, it it says it right there that there will be priority vaccination for heavily impacted neighborhoods, including uh, racialized neighborhoods and low-income neighborhoods. It's, It's right there in the framework. So we certainly can work within the framework. And really the debate now is to what extent, right? How much vaccine? Of all the vaccine we're getting, what proportion of vaccine should go into those neighborhoods? Um, you know, I think there's room to increase that. I, I really do. And, and I think it's the right thing to do uh, because it's we know that about 50% of the infections are in 20% of the neighborhoods. So it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It also ends this pandemic faster for everyone. I mean, if we quell that, right. it has tremendous spillover effects for the rest of the province. There's also talk about uh, reallocating. I mean, right now the vaccine is distributed on a sort of per capita basis, province to province, but uh, some provinces are doing better than other provinces. Um, where are you on the on the notion that, you know, maybe we should start uh, redistributing the vaccine, more vaccine going you know, um, skip the per capita model. Uh, let's send more vaccine to places that need it most. I mean, listen, there's obviously the science and the public health. And then, of course, there's the politics. And I mean, this would be a very, very challenging conversation to have. Having said that, you know, if you pour the water on where the fire is burning hottest, you're probably going to get the most bang for your buck. But I don't know how you would navigate that on a federal level. There'd be a lot of angry constituents, I think. Starting this week and for the next five weeks, Canada will be receiving at least two million doses of vaccine a week. Uh, what impact will that volume of vaccine have on curbing the spread? This is fantastic. So this is Pfizer is really stepping up and uh, we're actually doubling uh, the amount of Pfizer that's coming into the country. I mean, it's it's incredible. They It's a great vaccine. Uh, it's been able to be distributed very quickly through mass vaccine sites and through other venues. And I really think that the provinces can expand and they can really, uh, you know, continue to vaccinate at a fast pace, but ramp this even up further to 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 just get as many people vaccinated in a shorter period of time. It will take some effort, but hopefully the infrastructure is there to do it. Uh, Canada also begins receiving Johnson and Johnson vaccine this week, the single dose vaccine, just as supplies of AstraZeneca are drying up for a bit. Uh, there have been concerns raised in the U.S. about the J&J vaccine and rare blood clots there. Uh, so, uh, I, you know, we may be facing some more hesitancy in this country around that vaccine in Canada. What concerns, if any, do you have about the J&J vaccine? Uh, supply is interesting. Like, we're going to get an initial shipment, but I'm really curious to see how much more we actually get in. And this is a great vaccine. Like this is a one and done type vaccine. You don't require that same minus 20 or minus 80 cold uh, cold storage that you do for Moderna or Pfizer. Like this would be a great vaccine to really get in, you know, in populations that just have barriers through no fault of their own, but in populations that have barriers to vaccination. So, you know, uh, shelter populations, prison populations, migrant farm workers, there's just a lot of really good groups that could have, uh, you know, equitable vaccine access with this when we can't entirely guarantee that they'll that we can get them back for a second dose. Obviously, we have to work to reduce those barriers as much as possible. But we also have to be mindful that there are, you know, sad inequities that that uh, 
that are going to take time to iron out. And, and I really think we can do a lot of good with this vaccine in those populations. There are increasing calls for, for more testing of essential workers at the border and even tighter border controls as we see stories of Canadians exploiting a, a, a loophole in the in the flight quarantine rules by jumping a taxi in a taxi in the U.S. and taking it across the border. Are, are we doing enough at the border? I mean, I think the border measures are doing something. I, I, really, they are buffering us. It's not perfect. It's not 100%. But I think it's fair to say that we have buffered ourselves from a lot of COVID-19, including variants from coming into the country with the border measures. But no, it's, it's far from perfect. Listen, we imported B117. That's the variant of concern that was initially discovered in the United Kingdom. We were initially able to count that on one hand. And now it's the dominant strain in many parts of the country. So we are importing it. Even if we import infrequent, imported infrequently, it can still have negative repercussions on the country. I think we also have to factor in any border measurement with uh, an understanding that we are vaccinating and cases are actually starting to come down, plateau and come down. You know, there, there's always room to tighten things up at the border, though, and there's always room to uh, eliminate those loopholes. Um, and, you know, certainly something that, that the federal government should be looking at. I'm sure you're. Uh, let's finish on this. I'm, I'm sure your your perspective has has changed from week to week as we go through the pandemic in terms of where we are, what we're up against. Uh, tell me what you think as we start this new week. Uh, as you look down the road a little bit, um, what do you see? Next couple of weeks are going to be tough. There's no question about it, right? Our healthcare system in many provinces is stretched beyond capacity, and it's just it's just going to be a tough few weeks in the in the hospitals. If you look at the midterm and long term forecast, I think things look really good. We're vaccinating hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people per day in the country. Uh, we've crested in many parts of the country and maybe have even started to come down out of this third wave. Other places, not not just yet. Uh, so I think the midterm and long-term forecasts look good, but it will certainly be a very challenging few weeks ahead to get through this third wave. All right, Dr. Isaac Bogach, uh, thanks again for your time tonight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, opposition MPs are pushing for more committee hearings into the allegations of sexual misconduct against former Chief of Defence Staff uh, General Jonathan Vance. The demand comes after the latest testimony suggested the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, was aware of the allegations against Vance. That testimony came from Elder Marquez, a former senior advisor to the Prime Minister. He testified he was told by Telford or her assistant to contact the Minister of Defence in March of 2018 about an allegation against Vance. That would appear to contradict the version of events from the Minister of Defence who told the committee it was his office that reached out to the Privy Council about the allegation, not the other way around. Let's bring in three members of Parliament now to discuss all of this. Anita Vandenbelt is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Defence. James Bazan is the Defence Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Lindsay Matheson is the Deputy Whip for the NDP and is a member of the Committee on the Status of Women, which has also been looking into the allegations against General Vance. Uh, Anita Vandenbelt, let me start with you. Uh, the Prime Minister has said he didn't know about the allegation against General Vance until he heard it in the media. But the latest testimony suggests his chief of staff, uh, Katie Telford, was one of the first to hear about it in 2018. Is it reasonable to assume that if his chief of staff was aware, the prime minister must have been aware as well? 
I think that what we've seen is that, uh, and even the clerk of the Privy Council has said that, uh, is that what you had at that time is uh, an, it, it, it was not actionable, and they had reached an impasse. So at that point, there was nothing to actually tell. Uh, I think what what you're seeing in committee is we have heard from the acting chief of defence staff, the clerk of the Privy Council, the secretary to the cabinet, six hours with the minister, and all of it is pointing in the exact same direction direction is that the proper processes were followed. It went to the Privy Council uh, and that, in fact, everybody, it was Mr. Warnick himself that okay. said everybody. But, but are, you saying that, are you saying that Katie Telford uh, may have known, uh, it may have been brought to her attention, but she didn't think there was enough there to tell the Prime Minister? I, I think that's exactly what Mr. Marquez said, and that's exactly what Mr. Wernick said. It went to the highest public servant in the land. It went to Mr. Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council, who said that at that point uh, there was there was an impasse because they did not get uh, okay. a copy of the All right, let person wanted it to come forward. Mr. Bazan, so Mr. Bazan, why do you want to question Katie Telford, and what do you want to ask her? Well, I think it's got to the point now that. Um, it's not at all believable that Prime Minister Trudeau didn't know about the sexual misconduct allegations against General Vance. We know uh, from committee work uh, and that you know Katie Telford was immediately notified by Zita Stravis, the Chief of Staff, to uh, Minister Harjit Sajjan. And that uh, she took that information and then had Elder Marquis contact PCO and go back to Cedar Stravis. But, but do, do, do you think it's but so, do, you, do you think it's impossible to think that okay they went down the road a little bit, found that uh, they couldn't substantiate the allegation for the reasons they've all talked about, uh, that the prime minister would not have been informed at that point because they had nothing to tell him. As Mr. Wernick said uh, in his testimony, that he, he, he's very uh, disappointed that they lost sight of. Uh, these allegations against General Vance. And that's because this government, even though they talk about being uh, a feminist organization, they actually have done nothing and are a bunch of phony feminists. And so what we have here is that uh, both Minister Sajjan and the Prime Minister knew about these allegations and still decided to extend General Vance's uh, contract for another three years, gave him a $50,000 raise and left him in charge of Operation Honor and we know that he wasn't sincere about stomping out sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. Right. Let me let me move to your colleague. Let me move to your colleague, Ms. Ms. Matheson. Uh, what more do you think needs to be? Are, are there more questions that need to be answered here, Lindsay Matheson? I think that there there are, and I'm certainly uh, uh, awaiting to to hear uh, what happens at Defense Committee. Um, I think what's clear. Uh, um, Ms. Vanderbilt said specifically that proper processes had been followed, um, except that I, I, I think that there were processes in, in place, but they aren't proper. And they certainly haven't provided uh, the supports um, that these women uh, who have come forward need. They haven't gotten to a point where women uh, feel comfortable, safe, uh, and can serve equally in the armed forces. And, and that's where we need to get to. I'm really happy that in our committee, uh, we are getting to a point where we uh, can put a, a report forward, um, where we can hopefully start to see... Um, some answers, some some actions uh, that the armed forces can can bring forward. But do you think so? so do you think that? But do you do you think there are still, based on this latest testimony, do you think the defense committee needs to have more hearings? 
I think so. I mean, their their study was specifically to to figure out what went wrong at the top. Right. And this is one of the things that went wrong okay. at the top to ensure that these women did not get justice. So Anita Vandenveld, is, are liberals prepared to extend the committee hearings to hear from Katie Telford and maybe others? So our, our next study is actually on military justice. And uh, you're going to Ms. Matheson's point. Um, the processes failed in this case, and we need to look at that. One of the key ones is the military justice system and the fact that we need to make it that women can feel that not only can they come forward, but they will see justice done. Oh, okay. So well, I, what, what I'm at, are, you, are you prepared to have Katie Telford come before the Defense Committee and have another hearing, I, at least with her? I, I believe that Mr. Marquez was very, very clear. I, I think that we know exactly what happened. We know that there was not enough information to continue at that time. We did exactly the same as what Mr. O'Toole Okay, so did. That's, that's a no. About allegations. So that's a no. That. Is that a no then? You think the hearings have done their work and you don't need to hear from anybody else? All right, Mr. Uh, Mr. Bazan, there's, there's your answer. Liberals don't want this to proceed. Of course they don't because this is getting very close to, to the top. And when you got... Uh, the, the, the second in command to the prime minister being his chief of staff in the loop and in the know, we know that she has to explain to the prime minister at some point in time about what the, the nature of these sexual misconduct allegations were and must have also raised the issue that but, this but did, affect, but did anybody, it it's not, but it's not clear anybody at the time knew what the nature of the allegations were. The complainant didn't want to proceed, didn't want her name known. As Elder, as Elder Marquez said, when he was told by Katie Telford to look into it, he assumed the worst. And we don't know what Zeta Estravis said to Katie Telford or if Katie Telford had uh, a conversation the, with Mr. Sagan. For the record, that was Mr. Sagan's chief of staff. Yeah. Okay, look, let, let me jump ahead a little bit. Uh, uh, Lindsay Matheson, we now have the government uh, talking about creating this uh, person, this top-level job in the military to oversee racism, sexual misconduct, but it's going to be within the chain of command at the military. Is that going to work? Um, I don't think so. I think, I mean, I would hope so, um, but from everything that we heard in terms of the testimony from status of women, uh, you truly need someone who is independent. And all of these organizations, including CFNIS, uh, the Provo Marshal, they, they consistently said we are independent, but they are not. They are within that chain of, of command. And we were repeatedly seen from victim testimony that they haven't uh, okay. they haven't gotten the, the, the answers that they need. And on top of all of this, I mean everything that's been said already. They've had so many meetings, so many things uh, come forward, so many people come forward, and yet no one has taken responsibility. No one has taken responsibility for what has happened All right, to we, women. So just very, very quickly, very quickly, Anita Vandenbelt, uh, there's, there's this creation of this new cultural uh, over, czar that's going to look at the culture, but people are saying already if it's within the military, if it's within DND, it's not going to work. Nobody has said that it's going to be within the chain of command. I just want to be very clear on that. Uh, we are listening to survivors. We just put $236 million in the budget for military sexual trauma and for survivors. And um, we are listening. We will make sure that this is something that will be independent, that it is something that is going to allow for real justice and just okay, outcomes. Just a few seconds left, Bizan, if, it's, if, it, if, if it is within the chain of command, if it's within DND, can it work? Well, the only ones that are saying it can work within DND are liberals. Uh, everybody else said that it has to be independent of the chain of command. We support that independence. And at the end of the day, we need to see some ministerial accountability here. Minister Sajan hasn't even apologized yet. And, and we know that Prime Minister Trudeau knew what was happening, and, and he has to own up to that as well. We're, we're, we're going to leave it there. Uh, thank you all for your time. I appreciate it. We'll have a chance to follow up another time. Thank you all. Thanks, Peter. Thank you.
Canadians are disappointed by the budget, and we're certainly very disappointed by the budget. Uh, lots of debt on the shoulders of our children and grandchildren. Definitely a liberal plan to raise taxes, and and no real strategic approach to, to job creation. A, a number of little Band-Aid solutions. So we're in the process of also proposing some of our amendments, some of our own policies, but we will not be supporting a budget that really puts at risk our future. With the risk of interest rates in the next few years, Mr. Trudeau is putting our future prosperity at great risk. All right. Well, notwithstanding the objections of some in the opposition, the federal budget passed this evening. Uh, no big surprise there. Let's bring in our panel of parliamentary journalists. And let's start out uh, talking about that. Susan Delacourt's a columnist with the Toronto Star. Joel Denis Bellavance is the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. John Iveson's a columnist for the National Post and parliamentary bureau chief for Post Media. Good to see you all again. Uh, Susan, the budget's passed as expected, so no snap election. Uh, which federal leader do you think is most relieved about that? Well, I, I want to say Justin Trudeau because it's his budget or Christopher Freeland, but I, I, I would imagine, I think it's Aaron O'Toole. I think despite the fact that he did rush an environmental plan out the door, his team does not seem absolutely ready or just not ready uh, to quote another ad from another time. I think uh, Mr. O'Toole would benefit from a summer of, um, uh, of a little... Uh, getting out and talking to conservatives because they don't, it doesn't seem like they're all moving as one right now. All right, Joel. So I would, I, yeah. oh, go ahead, finish this. No, no, that's, okay. all, that's all. All right, uh, JD, what do you think? I would up with the same, uh, same leader. Uh, Aaron O'Toole must be the one who's more relieved that the budget is finally passed and that there's no snap election because he would have suffered maybe uh, more damage if there was a spring election. Now, as uh, Susan mentioned, he needs some time to be able to pick up his groove. And maybe with the vaccination campaign going better in parts of the country, he may start the uh, barbecue season <laughs> this summer and then try to meet and greet uh, Canadians. So I think he's the one who's most happy that this budget is now behind uh, everybody. All right, a low emission barbecue season. John, uh, what do you think? <laughs> uh, this is a... Uh, the shortfall of becoming of coming third, because I was going to say the same thing, but I agree with my colleague. Let's pretend you're coming first. Aaron O'Toole will be relieved. I would say that Justin Trudeau, though, will be relieved at the reception the budget has got, uh, notwithstanding um, critics like myself who uh, thought it was a pretty cynical vote-buying exercise. But, but there was a leger poll which uh, Post Media ran that suggested 15% of New Democrats would be more likely to vote Liberal. And it doesn't sound that much, but probably represents about half a million votes if it were extrapolated. So if he could get those half a million votes from the NDP, uh, I think he will be very happy with uh, the way things have gone. All right, let's, let's move on to the uh, pandemic response, uh, which is the, you know, the, chiefly the reason nobody said they wanted an election now is to, or some people did say they wanted to focus on this. Uh, Susan, Ontario is now uh, is going to be getting more help from the military and from the Red Cross. Cases have been raging for weeks in that province, and, uh, you know, the, re the request is coming in now. Uh, okay, we've lost Susan, but let me jump to J.D. and we'll get back to Susan. Uh, so, J.D., what do you think about the time it's taken for Ontario to ask for this help and to get it? Well, it just shows that the government is still in a uh, chaos mode, if I may say, responding to what's happening instead of anticipating events. And that shows that the situation is getting more 
dire in Ontario compared to other provinces. In Quebec, the number of cases uh, has not gone down under 1,000, about 889 cases today, whereas in Ontario it remains high at about 3,500. So uh, the provinces maybe should have asked for help because uh, earlier, uh, just to accelerate the vaccination campaign, uh, because uh, right now Ontario is really alone in where the situation is really getting out of uh, control. Uh, John, what, what are your thoughts on this and, and the request coming when it does uh, from Ontario for the for help from the military again? Well, I thought the, there was some good news today that the, the R number, the, the number of people who are infected um, per individual case seems to be below one for the first time. That suggests that perhaps we've peaked. And I think that that could not have come at a a better time for for Ontario because obviously things are pretty dire. And when you when you see uh, very sad cases like the thirteen year old girl who died in Brampton, um, it suggests that that uh, these new variants are really grabbing hold in a way that we haven't seen. So let's hope that uh, the 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 peak has been reached and that uh, help is coming just in time. Uh, Susan, help. Uh, we've got Susan back now. Help's coming from uh, from the military in Ontario and from uh, from the Red Cross. And I'm wondering what you think about the the timing of the request and and the dynamics we've seen the last couple of weeks when the federal government first said, "Look, we're ready to help with anything you need." And Doug Ford said, "Just send me more vaccines. I don't need any other help than that right now." Uh, so things are changing in Ontario. And what do you make of the timing of this? Well, I think it's probably, as you allude to there, coming a little later than we had expected. I think I, as an Ontarian, lifelong Ontarian, can't help but see it through the long lens of history, too. You know, in uh, in the, the long lens of things, Ontario is right now a have-not province. You know, Newfoundland was uh, always the have-not. And the, 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 the picture of this, of, of Newfoundland mighty Newfoundland sending nine people to Ontario today really does, it almost turns the Federation upside down mm. and shows just what a brutal third wave this is. I think the death of the 13-year-old girl, too, is a moment. I think this this is a day uh, in, in which we, we really see how much uh, this has has unsettled Ontario and sort of turned it upside down. But, but we knew that... Uh, that the federal government has been meeting since last weekend about what they could do for Ontario. Ontario didn't flick the official asking switch until today, which people are going to ask some questions about too. But I do think the situation is almost so dire there that I, I don't know that this is the time to say who should have done what first. It's uh it's just been a bad, bad couple of weeks in Ontario. John, let's broaden that conversation too to the, the you know, the, the the rest of the pandemic response. Principally, let, let's focus a bit on on the borders. Uh, Aaron O'Toole today calling for uh, the cancellation of all international flights, not just the flights from India and Pakistan, which has been done. But we have people taking, you know, taking flights to the border and then taking taxis across into Canada. Uh, people paying the fines and skipping the hotel mandatory uh, hotel quarantine. Do we have a coherent border policy right now, John? Well, I don't think we do. I think uh, it was interesting. Bill Blair tweeted out at the weekend that uh, the, the government has prohibited non-essential travel for the last year and that international travel is only uh, less than 2% of all cases. Now, if you actually go to the Public Health Agency website, they admit that that really underestimates the number of uh, of uh, 
travel-related cases because it only applies to those that are directly uh, on a flight. Not any community transmission subsequently. It doesn't apply to any land or sea travellers. Mm. Suffice it to say, I think that Blair was trying to deflect criticism that uh, Doug Ford had raised that these new variants didn't swim here. So we've got a bit of a, a spat going on. Obviously, uh, O'Toole is, is piling in as well because he sees this as a bit of a vulnerable heel for the Liberals, and the Liberals are already playing uh, playing defence on it. But I think, you know, it's, it, it, it is behooving on O'Toole to acknowledge the fact that if you do shut down everything, there's a price to pay for that. Yeah. And I think this is a discussion we need to have before the next thing rolls around, is that, yeah, we can ch- close everything. And at the moment, frankly, I'm in favour of closing everything, including interprovincial flights. It seems ridiculous to me that we've got a P1 variant in Vancouver, uh, primarily based in, in British Columbia, and you can get seven flights a day out of Vancouver into, yeah. into Ontario. Clearly, that's going to result in that B1 variant spreading. Right. Quick, quick answer from your call, Joel Denis, and then Susan. Uh, uh, do we need more done at the border? Well, we could always do more, but there's a problem the government has to deal with. If you suspend all flights from abroad, uh, you will uh, probably affect the supply chain because a lot of the cargo comes with passenger commercial flights. So that's a dilemma that the government has to wrestle with. And so far, that's why you've seen maybe some flights still bringing some passengers. And for them, the best option is to impose a quarantine in the hotels and then 14 days later uh, at home. But it's a, it's a dilemma because the supply chain has already okay. been uh, affected. And if you impose more restrictions, the supply chain will also be more affected. Susan, do we need to do more? Are we doing the right things? Or, or is there still work to be done on securing the border and trying to keep these variants out? Yeah, I think it's clear that, you know, these are coming from other places. The problem is there's a, a moral one. You don't want to feed xenophobia. There's a logistical one. You don't want to... Um, to affect the supply chain. And also people are cranky about these travel requirements. You know, that um, it's it's not just the governments that are resisting, it is the public that is resisting these travel requirements. So, um, you know, it, with every story of a, a, a stopped flight, there comes stories of tragedy and people not being able to, to, to get abroad. So um, it's not as simple as it sounds, but I think we should do more. All right, thank you all for your time. Uh, take care and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Peter. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching.